0: There's two characteristics of all relationships, whether it be marriage, whether it be friends, whether it be coworkers, siblings, whatever it may be. There's two characteristics of relationships. Number one, they're hard work. Relationships don't just happen. They're hard. And number two is that every relationship to some degree at some time, depending on the season, has some degree of tension to it some degree of difficulty, some degree of hard. And we, we tend to respond to the difficulty of relationships in various ways. And it's our attempt to try to deal with them, try to handle them, try to, in some cases, fix them, in some cases, just how do you respond to the, the hard of relationships? And we have a couple responses. I think some of us, tend to run away. We just, we just leave it. So when a relationship gets hard and really difficult, we just put the firewall up, right? Or we walk out of it or we just leave that social circle, right? We unwind, we quit talking to the person. We say, it's just too hard. I can't handle it anymore. I'm out. Right? That's one way we handle it. Another way we handle it is, and this, is, this tends to be the Southern way to do it, we just pretend everything's okay right? So we walk into the room, we see the person and we smile and we shake their hand or give them a hug. You know, inside there's darts coming out, but we give them the Southern smile, right? So we just, we pretend that everything's okay. We just brush it under the carpet. We ignore it. We said, we're just going to pretend it's not there. And, and that'll help deal with it. And then the, the third way is, <laughs> I think some people just love the drama of conflict, Maybe you have this going on in your family. Sometimes we just we love the hard, we love the brokenness, we love the drama, we love what it causes in the conflict. And maybe you know people like that. It's like, do they just love conflict? They just they get almost a kick out of it, right? And they keep stirring the pot, and they keep and they're they're right there, and they keep mixing it up, right? We've got all these ways we respond. To conflict, All the ways that we respond to or try to deal with the hard of relationships and the brokenness of relationships. Now, we've been looking at this series of Christ crucified and looking at what the, the cross of Jesus Christ accomplishes. And one of the things that the cross accomplishes is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, which is Reconciliation that the cross of Jesus Christ is able to bring restoration to broken relationships. Now, why? We're going to look at the need for reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, and the ministry of reconciliation. Let me say it another way. We're going to answer the question, why is there a need for reconciliation? How does God accomplish it? And then what is the fruit of it? So let's start with the need for reconciliation. There's two kinds of broken relationship that Paul identifies in this passage. The first is described in verses 11 to 12. And there Paul is describing this division and this discord that's in the Corinthian church as it pertains to the way that people in and around the church are viewing Paul. So Paul had these opponents, and there were a number of them, who were who were mocking Paul, who were slandering Paul's name, who were who were lifting themselves up and tearing Paul down, and it was creating this this dissension and this division in the church, and it was putting attacks on relationships and on who was following Paul and who wasn't. In fact, We see in the the bigger picture of the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. There's two of them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 1st Corinthians, Paul writes this. This is an ongoing problem that this church was experiencing. In 1st Corinthians 3, 3 to 4, he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos... Are you not merely being human? So there were just these factions and this relational dysfunction. And some people are saying, I'm a Paul man and I'm an Apollos man. And it was just creating all kinds of broken relationship in the church. Now, why was there the jealousy and the envy? Well, now look at verse 12 of our passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. And what he's describing there is, and we see it throughout uh, his letter of of 2 Corinthians, we see these people that Paul is describing, these opponents, that they boasted. And they boasted in a variety of things. They boasted in letters of recommendation. So they boasted in these, these letters that were written for them on their behalf. They boasted in their eloquence, how smooth they were and the way they would talk and communicate. Eloquent preachers, whatever it may be. They boasted in their Jewish birth and heritage. They boasted in their their race and their heritage. They boasted in visions and revelations. And they boasted in the performance of their miracles. And so what they did is they boasted in all these externals and pointed out that Paul lacked them all. And so they lifted themselves up and and they lowered. And they lowered Paul. And the point is that there was this great division in the church. Right? There was this need for reconciliation in and around this church. Second, second kind of broken relationship is described in verses 18, 19, and 20, where over and over, it says that we must be reconciled to God. Meaning that there is a broken relationship between us and God. There's a holy God, we're a sinful people and therefore our relationship to God is broken and we come into the world that way. We just did baptisms, William and Reagan come into the world as sinful and their relationship with God broken. And so there's this broken relationship with God. Now put this together, not only are uh, our relationships with one another broken and stressed and hard but our relationship to God is broken and they're not independent of each other. In fact, Paul describes why there are broken horizontal relationships in this Corinthian church, why they're having trouble with each other, why they can't uh, have, have peace with one another. And he says it in verse 14. Look at it. For the love of Christ controls us. Now he had just gotten done describing this Dysfunction. And he's saying in essence, but that's not how it should be with us in Christ because the love of Christ controls us. In other words, the reason for the relational brokenness is because a a love other than the love of Christ, and by that meaning Christ's love for us, that these people were controlled by another love, not the love of Christ. They were controlled by love of success and love of competence, love of approval, love of their ethnic heritage, and this is what moved them or caused them to, to, to elevate themselves and to, to think of Paul's lesser and to create factions and all of this. Right? But it flowed out of not being controlled by the love of Christ. It's the same today. If, if you are controlled, mastered, controlled, by anything but the love of Christ, you're going to experience horizontal and vertical alienation. If you're not controlled by the love of Christ, then relational brokenness is just inevitable. Because when your relationship with God is broken, you have no choice but to try to, try to fill that void with another love. And in essence, you become controlled by that. Everyone in here is controlled by something, right? Nobody's free. Everyone's controlled by something And if it's not Christ, then those other things that control us lead to relational fracture and relational tension and division. Let me give you a couple examples here. If you're controlled by your love for the Florida Gators, then you will exclude those who don't share that love. And now at the extreme, right, you see it, go to a game. (laughs) And what do people do at the extreme? to people who are wearing some other jersey, right? You get your car keyed, maybe. <laughs> you get physically hurt, right? I mean, you see the extreme of when, when someone's controlled by that love, be at the Florida Gators, right? Then what do you do? You exclude, right? Or maybe on the positive side, you just kind of surround yourself with that little club of people that like that, right? If you're controlled, now this, if you're controlled by your love for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And this is fresh. If you're controlled by one of those loves, then guess what happens? You you exclude, maybe not, if you don't exclude, you treat others that are not a part of your love for that party a little differently or maybe more, more realistically in your heart, you have a little bit less respect for that person. Uh, if, if you're uh, controlled by your love for a certain preference of education, whether it be public or private or homeschool, right? you can look down on or judge those who don't share that love. And it creates, even if it's silent, it creates relational dissension. Right? Or if you're, if you're, now this is a positive example, and I've seen this happen. If you're controlled by a certain, uh, by a love for, a certain mercy ministry, maybe to the homeless or to prisoners or maybe to victims of sex trafficking. I mean, you have a heart for this. If you're controlled by that, then you start to look at people that don't have an interest in that. And and maybe you begin to think in your heart that they're enjoying the the comforts of suburbia just a little bit too much. And they're really not willing to get their hands dirty. And, And you can start to get to a place of judgment. Here's the point. Anything, and we're talking about idolatry here, but you can be controlled by anything. And if you're controlled by something other than the love of Christ, then the inevitable fallout of that is relational friction and dissension to varying degrees. Because ultimately at a vertical level, right, you're putting something else, even if it's a good thing, in place of what controls your heart rather than the love of Christ. So we experience this horizontal and vertical alienation, and therefore we need reconciliation. Now let's move on to the second point. If if it's clear that we need reconciliation, what is the means of reconciliation? How does God actually accomplish it? And I wanna answer two questions here. How does he do it and when does he do it? And both are critical. Let's start with how he does it. Look at the end of verse 14, beginning of verse 15 says Jesus died for all. The word for, meaning substitution, right? So Jesus died in your place. Verse 21 tells us that he died in your place to what? Take your sin, verse 21, give you his righteousness. We call it the great exchange. Jesus dying in your place accomplishes what we read in verse 19. God not counting their trespasses against them. When Jesus dies in your place, takes your sin, God no longer counts your sin against you. And all of that leads up to what we read in verse 18. And this is the purpose of all his work of Jesus on the cross, dying in your place. Why? Verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, the goal of all of it is, is, is union with God, relationship with God, All of what we've studied so far, right? If you look at the various intricacies of the the cross and what it accomplished, we've looked at the sacrificial imagery of the temple in Hebrews. We've looked at the uh, courtroom language of justification in Romans. All of that is building to what? That we're united with God. That we have relationship with God. It's visually portrayed in the gospels. That when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple? The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain that separated a holy God from a sinful people from top to bottom, meaning God did it, was torn in half and opened up so that the way to God in relationship with God was restored. And God accomplished that through the work of his son, Jesus. So when you look at, and we look at the various components of salvation, why are we called? Why are we justified? Uh, Why are we glorified? Why are we sanctified? All these beautiful components of salvation, they all lead up to and are for the purpose of relationship with God, restored relationship with God. You know, I shared this uh, illustration probably a couple months ago. It's the Disney movie, The Straight Story. And it's the story of um, this 73 year old man's pilgrimage to restore relationship with his brother. They, had been, they hadn't seen or spoken to each other in 10 years. And Alvin learns his brother Lyle had a stroke. And so he, he decides he's going to make right on this relationship. And so he makes up, he gets a makeshift trailer. He hooks it up to his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower and takes off on a 500-mile journey. Now you do the math. Riding lawnmower, 500 miles, long time. Right, and he, and, he, and he camps out in fields and he camps out in backyards of people that are hospitable. He finally gets to his brother's house. He knocks on the door and Lyle opens the door and he, and he stares at this makeshift trailer. And he stares at the riding lawnmower. And he's, he, I mean, he's contemplating, my goodness, what must have it taken for my brother to come 500 miles on that? Where did he sleep? What did he do? The planning, the perseverance, all of that. Now, now, what if he would have just continued staring at the trailer and the riding lawnmower and how much it took for his brother to do this and never looked at his brother? He said, so that's a tragedy, right? All the sacrifice, all the hard work, all the planning, all of that built up for what? The embrace, which happens. Right? These brothers embrace. They're one again. The relationship's restored. All of what it took for God to bring reconciliation, Jesus' sacrifice and all the intricacies of it and what it accomplished was for the purpose of restoring you to a relationship with the one who made you, with the one who loves you, with the one who knows you, but whose relationship was broken by sin. And so that's the, that's the how You're reconciled to God. And that's the culmination of all the work. All of Christ crucified leads to that relationship. Now, second question though, when did this happen? Understand how it happened, how God reconciled through the death of his son, Jesus. But when did it happen? Romans chapter five, verses 10 through 11 says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, By the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You hear what that says? While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. What's that mean? It means that God moved towards you when you had no desire to move towards him. It means that while you and I were were enjoying and quite content with our independence from God, quite content being masters of our lives and and doing our thing and what we want to do and, and God having no part of it, while we were content in that, God moved towards us. While we were enemies, he moved towards us. And what's so remarkable about that is God was the offended party. We were the offenders. And so what it says is that God, the offended party, moved towards you and I, offenders, who were in the midst of being quite content with being repeat offenders. It's astonishing when you get that. And here's what it means. If your sin and rebellion didn't keep God from moving towards you before you were reconciled, then how in the world could your sin now being reconciled keep God from moving towards you? You see, the, the, the curtain in the temple doesn't get sewn back up. Now, some of you may say, oh, great, doesn't matter what I do then. Right? I, I can sin. God still moves towards me. Everything's good. I'm reconciled. No, then you don't get it because this is all about relationship. And then if God has done this for you, that in your sin, when the spirit brings conviction, you, you keep returning to the one who defines you and the one who gives you life and an identity. But you understand that if he moved towards you while you were an enemy, then it's Paul's how much more argument. He does it over and over in his letters. Then how much more now reconciled does he move towards you in love? Amazing degree of assurance. So we've looked at the need for reconciliation. We've looked at the means for reconciliation. Now let's, let's look at the fruit of reconciliation. What is the, the fruit of reconciliation? What we see here is that God gives us a, a ministry. He gives us a ministry of reconciliation. So what does it take to, to, to faithfully and fruitfully carry out this ministry of reconciliation? Reconciliation that flows out of being reconciled to him. Outward perspective, a model, and an inward perspective. Let me start with the outward perspective. Look at verse 16. From now on, from now on, meaning having been reconciled, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Remember, he's just finishing talking about those people that are focused on externals and outward appearance. Paul's saying, listen, once you're reconciled, he's saying, you, you, you see people, you regard people, you see people through a different lens. Uh, this past week in our staff meeting, we did a very interesting exercise. We were sitting around the table. Everyone was given a sheet of paper and there was a picture on this sheet of paper and we weren't to show anybody else what was on this the sheet given to us. And then we were given 10 seconds to study this image. Look at it, study it for 10 seconds. And then after 10 seconds, we all put our papers down and there was an image or a picture put up on the screen. And uh, Micah was leading us through this. And so he said, okay, looking at the screen, do you see in the picture on the screen, an older woman or a younger woman? And about half of us said an older woman and half said a younger woman. And I was the one that I was in the older woman camp and I, I'm looking at it and, and I'm in my heart thinking about those that said younger woman and I'm going, what are you looking at? Are you, it's obvious. Just look at the picture. It's an older woman. Well, what had happened is this, the sheets we looked at for 10 seconds The ones that said that's a younger woman looked at a sheet that had an image of a younger woman for 10 seconds. And those of us that said that's an older woman looked at a sheet for 10 seconds that had an image of an older woman. And you've seen this before, but the image up on the screen was one where both were there, right? We're all looking at the same picture. But we were looking at the picture through a different lens that the 10 seconds had created. What Paul is saying here is that before you're reconciled, before you're reconciled to God through Christ, you have a lens through which you see people. It's a lens of, of skin color. It's a lens of uh, socioeconomic status. It's a lens of education level. It's a lens of cultural makeup, right, that you view people through. But what he's saying is once you've been reconciled to God through Christ, you get a new lens, And you look at that same person in which you saw skin color before and now you see the image of God. Or you look at that same person that you saw uh, socioeconomic status in before and now you see the image of God. Or you look at that person before that had a certain education level that you couldn't get your brain off of and now you see the image of God. He's saying, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, which just means your own capability of how you view people, which apart from Christ, you don't have a choice. All you see is categories. That's what we do. That's the problem with the human race, is we see categories. Paul says, when you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, guess what? You get a new lens. And you no longer see the human categories by which we classify and exclude people that cause all the relational tension that we have, right? You see the image of God. So that's the outward perspective of a ministry of reconciliation. You see the image of God in everyone, everyone, rich, poor, black, white, whatever the distinctions we would use. You see the image of God in that person. That's the outward perspective that's needed. Now, what's the the model for a ministry of reconciliation? Paul says we become stewards of reconciliation. Look at the end of verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, end of verse 19, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you've got ministry and message. Now those two words are interesting. The word ministry in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, that word for ministry is diakonia. It means to serve. It's where we get the word deacon. The word for message is logos, which means word. And what that means is that the ministry of reconciliation or the gospel of reconciliation is word and deed. It's service and proclamation. It means that we, we serve our neighbors with the sweet gospel of reconciliation. Oh, and we speak the words of that gospel of reconciliation. And oftentimes it's the service, it's the ministry that opens the doors for the message. John of, uh, John of Kronstadt, he was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest. And, and he ministered in a time where alcohol abuse was rampant, absolutely rampant. And so, all uh, his, his fellow priests in the different churches virtually none of them ventured outside of their churches. Towards these people that had been abusing alcohol. It was just it was rampant, it was all over the place. Rather, they would wait. They would wait for those people to come in to them. But but John would go out into the streets. And he would go, he would go to this person who, who was hung over, foul smelling, laying in the gutter. And, and people would say he'd go up and he'd cradle this person in his arms. And look at him in the eye and say, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Out of that comes the gospel. That's ministry and message. It's not waiting for people to come to you when they figure out to come. Because guess what? They don't figure that out apart from the Holy Spirit. It's going towards, it's moving towards in service, in mercy towards your neighbor. And and in service, sharing the gospel of reconciliation, and then and then the Lord raises up the opportunity for the message to come through. But it's word and deed. You know, we launched last Sunday the 21 days of prayer guide for our neighbors, and we do that every year because we want to give you. And it's you know it's three weeks of 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 intentionality. It's not just those three weeks. It's the entire year. But it's a It's a time to focus and have intentionality to lead with prayer, but then serve your neighbors and invite them to Easter Sunday where they're gonna hear the message of reconciliation. Ministry and message, Word and deed, service and proclamation. That's what God calls us to, to have a healthy, fruitful ministry of reconciliation. And then the last piece to it, outward perspective, the, the model for it, And the last is an inward perspective. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If, If the outward perspective is to see the image of God in everyone, the inward perspective is to see yourself as an ambassador. It's not your message. It's not your ministry. You're simply an ambassador. Now, being an ambassador is hard work. It's hard work, right? You have to be bilingual. You have to be bilingual. You you have to be able to speak in the language of the country to which you're sent, You have to be able to bridge cultures. It's what Paul talks about a little bit later in this letter or in the, in the, uh, later in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter nine, he says, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. To the weak, I become weak. I become all things to all men, all people, that I might save some. Paul, what Paul's talking about there is the, the need to be bilingual, that you, you speak and, and serve in word and deed the, the, the gospel in the language of the culture. Now that's hard work because that takes intentionality to speak the gospel into the language of a culture. But the other part of an ambassador is that you never forget the country from which you're sent and the country that you're representing. And so while we speak the gospel in the language of the culture, we're never to speak it in such a way that it waters it down or it changes it. Again, it's not your message. It's God's message of reconciliation. He just speaks it through you And there's great freedom in that. So you speak it in the language of the culture, but you don't change it. You don't water it down. It's his message. What's that mean? Just I'm pausing because I want everyone to. if, If you're distracted and you're thinking about lunch right now, I want you to pause, and I want I want you to let this land. God is making his appeal through you. That's astounding. The God of the universe is choosing to make his appeal to this lost and broken world that needs reconciliation through you. God's making his appeal to your neighbors through you. God's making his appeal to your classmates through you. God's making his appeal to, to the teammates, your teammates through you. God's making his appeal to uh, the children in your classroom through you. God's making his appeal to, to your coworkers through you. God is making his appeal, the message of reconciliation through you. And if that seems like a weighty call, it is. And if you're feeling stressed and burdened by it, then you need to remember it's not your message. It's not your ministry. It's his ministry, it's his message. He just wants to use you. So you need to feel the weight of it. That's weighty. And for some of us, we need to, we need to camp out on the weight of that. But then by the time you get burdened and stressed, then you got wait a minute, no, no, it's not your message. It's his message, and there's freedom there. Eugene Peterson, he's a pastor and an author, he describes, um, and this was when he was teaching, one of his students who would travel uh, on a long, long bus ride um, to get to college, to go to class, like a 40-minute bus ride. And this student described to him how when he, uh, he left his house, he was married, he left his house in the morning and he told his wife, I'm going to immerse myself in God's creation today. Went off to class, came back the next day, got up in the morning, left and said to his wife, I'm going to immerse myself in God's creation today. Third day rolls around, says the same thing to his wife. His wife says, don't you think you need to go to class? Like enough of this, okay, great. You go hang out in the woods and, 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 and look at the beauty of God's creation and go to the beach, walk on the beach, right? The beauty of God's creation, but enough's enough, right? At some point you, you need to go to class. And, and, and he said, I have been going to class. And she said, well, what's all this talk about God's creation? Listen to his response. Well, I spend 40 minutes on the bus each morning and afternoon. Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created in the image of God, created male and female. And then Eugene Peterson makes this comment. We need to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above us and the violets blooming at our feet. Men and women children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature, of God's creation. Each in need of the gospel of reconciliation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you give us a heart for people? Would you give us that lens through which we see in every person the image of God first? Father, all those human categories that that we establish to exclude and to classify and to make ghettos of people, would you destroy those by the cross of Christ? And you promised to do that. As we read in the scripture that once reconciled, we, we no longer regard people according to the flesh. That you would help us to see the beauty of everyone made in the image of God, image of God though severely shattered it is. And Father, would you put on us the weight of you making your appeal through us and may we feel that weight and yet not get to the place of burden, knowing that it's your message, it's your gospel simply flowing through us, word and deed. And Father, finally, I pray for any here this morning who are not reconciled, who are, who are living independent of you, God. Would they feel and know your pursuit that right in the place that they are at, at, that you are pursuing them in love to reconcile them to yourself through the work of your son, Jesus, that they could enjoy this amazing relationship with the maker of the universe. Father, would you bring that conviction? Would you bring your spirit to do that? And as we close now in worship, would you remind us of what we sing about that the day is coming when, when we will gather with people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe to sing of your greatness and to sing of your praise. And may that picture of ultimate reconciliation drive us to be about it now in the midst of our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our colleges, in our schools. For your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.